Hello, and welcome to the Meaning of Life podcast, hosted by Dr. Susie Farello. Dr. Farello is an associate professor at California State University, East Bay. She does philosophy based on lived experience and works as a philosophical counselor. You can find some of her work online on academia.edu and psychology today. Thank you. I'm very happy today to welcome Professor Stone for our new episode of Philosophy Gets Personal. Uh, Professor Stone uh, teaches at the University of Lancaster. She has written widely on feminist philosophy, history of philosophy, aesthetics, history of women philosophers, and other related topics. Currently, she's working on the 19th century women philosophers, especially in Britain. I'm very happy to have you, Alison. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So um, let's start from here. I, I read in uh, in your bio and uh, in some of your work that, um, that you are examining uh, patriarchy, or better, uh, you are questioning the stereotypes of uh, patriarchy in the 19th century and today. What led you there? What, how, how did you get there? And uh, do you think there's a big difference between what was happening before, uh, the stereotypes that we have now? Uh, where do you stand? Gosh, okay. As yeah, a first yeah, question, it's not yeah, such a yeah, warm-up question. Absolutely fine. Yeah, in terms of this this questioning of stereotypes, it's it's really <laughs> that I found that the Victorian period was quite different from the assumptions that I think we have at least I think we have them partly because I think I used to hold these assumptions myself until I began looking into the period. And it was a friend of mine who was working on 19th century German women philosophers mm. and mentioned it to me. And this is a few years ago. And then I just started thinking, oh, yeah, so who were the 19th century women philosophers? And it was just one of those things where I realised that I'd never, I'd never asked this question, mm. even though I'd I'd been, I'd studied the nineteenth century for a long time. Um, and then I got kind of drawn into into Britain, particularly partly because you know I, I had to narrow it down. And yeah, then what was remarkable to me was discovering all these women philosophers from Victorian Britain who, in many cases, you know, they published a lot and uh, they had a lot of authority at the time. They were well-known. They were household names in some cases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there weren't the kind of barriers to them publishing at all that I I would have imagined. Because mm -hmm. I think... I mean, there's one writer who says that we have a bit of an image of this period. It's almost that women were kind of locked at home with nothing to do but read conduct manuals. Um, you know, as she says, it wasn't really like that. It was just quite interesting to, to discover that, I mean, of course, there was the ideology of sort of separate spheres and the angel in the house and so mm -hmm. on. You know, the ideology was quite different from the social reality. Can you talk a little bit about the angel in the house? Because uh, there's that essay of Virginia Woolf that is just amazing. And I would love to share it with our audience a little. 
Well, so it's this, the angel in the house, it comes from this poem, um, this poem by a man called Coventry Patmore, idealising his wife. Um, I think the thing is, it's, it's sort of just been taken to kind of reflect the reality of women's lives more than it was. Virginia Woolf is obviously fantastic, but I've also come to think... That there are ways, I think, that she portrays the period before her as having been worse for women than it was. So, so one one scholar has pointed out that Virginia Woolf kind of makes out that there were hardly any women writers, sort of between her and Charlotte Bronte, kind of during mm. the eighty, 80 years between mm. the two. You know, and that there were lots. I think it's a bit that if she makes things sort of seem seem really bad, it's like there's kind of more, I suppose, to criticise. It gives her criticisms of patriarchy more weight. Mm. But it, uh, there are also people who've suggested that it, it kind of serves to make her out to be more of a pioneer. Mm. And, sort of total original than she perhaps was. Why do you think that happened? Uh, I'm really happy to have this talk with you today because uh, I'm completely ignorant, apparently, on uh, on the point. Uh, why? How did that happen? That there were women, uh, philosophy women, uh, philosophers, uh, who had power, who had authority and so on, and we don't remember them today, and we are complaining that they've never been. Uh, how did we get to this point of confusion? Mm. I mean, because it's not just with the 19th century. I mean, I think that for me, as for a lot of people, a really important article was Disappearing Ink by Eileen O'Neill, where... I mean, her core point is really simple and is that there always were women philosophers. It's, it's that they've been left out of the narratives and histories and from the canon, even mm. though they were, they were there in historical reality. But I think the thing is with historians of women in philosophy, they've mainly looked at the early modern period and the 20th century. So it's a bit just because the 19th century has been missed out. But yeah, your broader question, you know, how did it happen that some of these people were well known at the time and, and then they they disappeared? I mean, this is why Eileen O'Neill uses the metaphor of disappearing ink. I think some of it is that for the 19th century figures at the at the turn of the 20th century was really when in britain when the academic profession was sort of taking its modern shape i mean there had been universities or a few universities for a long time but they were sort of quite a different quite a different kind of thing and it was really at the beginning of the 20th century that you also got kind of specialist, the first specialist journals for all the disciplines, including philosophy and specialist organisations like the Aristotelian Society, 
everything became it became more professionalized and more expected that if you were going to be a philosopher you would be an academic at a university which you know i don't think that that wasn't that wasn't particularly the case before Mm-hmm. But I think so then, you know, these women in hindsight didn't, they didn't look like professional specialists. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that's part of it. But that I makes mean, sense. Yeah, it's bound to be a very, you know, very complicated story. How how was it for you? Uh, you are uh, a name in uh, in philosophy. Uh, how how did you get there? Did you have to cope with any stereotype? Uh, did you juggle with your family? How was it for you? Well, well, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say getting into philosophy in the first place that for me was was quite easy. When I was doing the A-levels, which in in Britain, it's the stage from 16 to 18. When I, at that stage, one of the A-levels I was doing was classical civilization. And so, so that meant I encountered Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus, Lucretius. And so there was that. And simultaneously, I remember in the library just at random picking out The Outsider by Camus. And for me, I mean, there's many problems, obviously, with that book, but um, for me, it was it was life-changing, really. I'd never heard of him, you know, I just picked it out at random, and that sort of got me started reading lots of existentialism. So, and then I changed to, I had been going to do a German degree, but I changed to do philosophy. The PhD stage, though, I would say, because at some point during the degree, during my degree, um, a friend of mine remarked at one point, you're obviously going to do a PhD and become an academic. And when he said that, I thought, oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so that, that decision kind of took itself. But there were definitely points while doing the PhD in feminist philosophy It certainly felt a bit of a struggle. It was the 1990s, and mm. feminist philosophy was still a bit reputable, I would say, to lots of philosophers. I discovered um, Gender Trouble by Judith Butler, uh, which I found very hard at first. You know, I remember reading it about four times. And, you know, philosophers would sort of keep saying to me, why on earth are you interested in this? <laughs> Which is, you know, it's strange in hindsight now that, yeah. you know, Butler's one of the best known philosophers in the world. But so, but something that for me was an absolute kind of lifeline was that there was SWIP, Society for Women in Philosophy UK. And that, um, that was really important for me, sort of making, you know, then I felt like I wasn't kind of, the only person who who thought who thought that feminist philosophy was was important and and worth pursuing i mean yeah but there's 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 been certainly there's been difficulties at other points as well but 
Yeah. And was it possible to have it all? I mean, to have your family and your academic career, your passion for philosophy, uh, your time for yourself, or uh, uh, there sacrifices to your happiness along the way? I think that, um, I mean, I do get, I get very anxious. Um, very anxious um i would yeah i would certainly describe myself as um an anxious person whether that's sort of where the the sacrifice has mm -hmm. come i don't know i mean when when i um when i first had my daughter she's 16 now wow. when i yeah when i first had her i mean that that was a very difficult time for me. Um, I can remember being in hospital after having given birth to her and thinking, what have I done? What have I? Because <laughs> I know, but it was this sense of this, just this responsibility. My God, yes. Just overwhelming and feeling I could not possibly kind of you know, just how was I going to keep her alive? And unfortunately, what then made the whole first year really difficult was that um, she she would only breastfeed. She would never drink from a bottle at all. Mine as well. Yeah. yeah. I know. She she, so we would try... She would sit there sort of sucking away on a, a bottle, but, you know, none of it would go into her. Oh, um, sweetie. Ay, ay, ay. That was worrisome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then the problem was that um, she she wasn't really putting on very much weight. We started to have to see a nutritionist and a paediatrician, and it was um, it was all quite worrying. So that was a very difficult time, and I think... One of the things about it that I felt quite frustrated by at the time was because we had planned that my partner was going to be the main child carer. But basically, because she would only breastfeed, you know, yeah. And and I sort of felt there was this kind of gap in in kind of feminist discussions about this because on the one hand you know people were, were broadly in favor of breastfeeding but on the other hand would tend to sort of say that you know the parental roles are socially constructed and <laughs> so yeah but I mean I yeah I, I realize you've got a very young child at the moment so yeah, I I can feel you completely. I I spent this is his first year, and I spent uh, basically the first eight months uh, breastfeeding. I mean, it's a, a full time job and more because that's what you do the whole day, and exactly. in the meantime, you're expected to function as a human being. So. Yeah, on you, it depends uh, the life of your child, your life, which doubles uh, the dependence of the life of your child, because uh, if you can provide, uh, if you are sick, then you cannot breastfeed, then your child will be sick as well. And I started reading lots of feminist philosophy in, in those moments, uh, because, you know, I was sitting on that couch. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
about um, and, and it's a pity that uh, it, there's uh, there is something uh, now about uh, philosophy of pregnancy, philosophy of motherhood, uh, also about breastfeeding. There's a, a feminist philosopher who compared it to a modern vacuum cleaner <laughs> that uh, keeps you. I don't remember <laughs> now that keeps you down in the house uh, and um, prevents you from uh, yeah being outside and doing uh, anything else actually mm. Mm. Uh, so I remember doing these readings while I was breastfeeding and yes it's a wonderful experience uh, but at the same time, I, I understand your anxiety and it's a pity that we started reflecting on it uh, now in these recent centuries. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was wonderful. It was wonderful, of course, as well. Um, yeah, I used to sit reading, um, but I think, I mean, I felt too tired to yeah. <laughs> be yeah. reading a huge amount of philosophy. I think I was mainly, mainly reading reading novels. I mean, the sleep the sleep aspect yeah. I also found I found very difficult. Yeah, yeah. it's been um, one year that I don't sleep. <laughs> yeah, there's I mean, the idealization, I think. Because it was another of these things, you know, we had sort of planned out that my partner and I would kind of have have shifts. But again, you know, we hadn't factored in the fact that she would be waking every couple of hours needing, you know, to feed. And it couldn't be that he was giving her some milk in a bottle. So, yeah. Um, but anyway... Yeah. Um, and weren't you afraid that one thing I felt strongly in this month is um, uh, to lose myself? I mean, I love my job. Mm -hmm. I love writing, especially about philosophy. And uh, yeah, and at some point I, I, I started feeling very, very scared of uh, not being there anymore. Yeah, uh, my boss was extremely nice, and uh, he helped me in any way he could uh, with the classes and so on. But yeah, I mean, uh, you have a certain amount of time, uh, and uh, there are two life worlds uh, that are taking shape there, mm. and uh, it's as if um, yeah, there's less space because uh, you have to help uh, the creation of this new universe and. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. A part I mean, of you has to be. Yeah. There's this yeah. phrase that the sociologist Anne Oakley uses when she says that she felt delivered of her identity at the same time mm -hmm. as she delivered of her baby and mm -hmm. definitely felt something of that. And I think it sort of made me aware that even though on a philosophical level I'd been quite you know skeptical of the idea of the sort of autonomous individual agent but in a way still until I had my daughter I had kind of been feeling that I was an autonomous individual agent mm -hmm. and suddenly I I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and um so 
it also I mean I think it brought me into a bit of a crisis in my relationship to feminism as well I mean yeah. I think it's different as you say there's so much more written about philosophy of motherhood and pregnancy and and birth now um at the time it made me aware of how much in feminism had been critical of motherhood mm -hmm. as an institution mm -hmm. um and and i and so i came to feel that there'd been a lot more that there seemed to have been a lot more of that i mean that distinction adrian rich makes between motherhood as experience and institution and i felt that there hadn't been nearly as much thought about motherhood as experience i mean i do think that has changed yeah perhaps as you know a generation of feminists has has grown older and and had babies mm, 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 yeah we need that <laughs> i think <laughs> yeah we need to see how it develops because i don't know i still have the hope and that's what i teach to my students that uh, we can have it all and we shouldn't even call it all because it's just life i mean mm. <laughs> we can pursue our passion and find a job that fits it and still love our partners without having antagonistic attitudes and have a family we love but my students don't believe me <laughs> do they know uh, <laughs> no I mean, it all feels a lot more feasible for me now that my daughter is is a lot older but i definitely as well when she was younger as well i think for a while i felt quite distanced from from academic philosophy just because you know feminist philosophy aside there just there just didn't seem to be much room in it really for any interest very much in in motherhood or parenthood or i mean obviously there is sort of within applied ethics but somehow somehow i, I don't know i it didn't seem to really speak to me so i felt quite estranged i think for a while from academic philosophy because it just seemed that aside from parts of feminist philosophy there was mm -hmm. just so little um i mean i know that there is quite a lot about kind of reproduction and parenthood in a way within applied ethics it didn't sort of really speak to me i suppose i wanted something that was more kind of phenomenological and just sort of exploring the experience rather than you know being normative i totally agree yeah and now there's a few names of phenomenologists who are uh, exploring the lived experience i mean on the practical sense of what uh, do you have to cope with and um, yeah hopefully uh, we are learning of uh, yeah what it means but even practically breastfeeding because it's always presented with these uh, idealized image of uh, yeah the angel mother and everything is fine everything is easy mm. and uh, it's really not i mean yeah. we, we <laughs> yes 
we need the experience and also some philosophical reflection of uh, yeah what these two people are in the moment of uh, the mm-hmm. encounter mm-hmm. because the mother is this new identity the child is this new being who comes from mm-hmm. uh, who knows where mm-hmm. and in the meantime uh, all uh, the old life uh, is still there unchanged uh, and uh, keeps going mm-hmm. yeah how how do you think uh, uh, I mean, uh, the philosophy and all that you did in your career help you to reach a certain state of happiness, if it did, if the two of them were combined. I mean, I was thinking, I, I, I was thinking about that. Um, I mean, I, I must say, I really don't know how mm-hmm. much philosophy um, with happiness. I remember... So there was a point, actually, it was when my daughter was quite young. Um, I, I mean, I think that I was depressed. Certainly I was, I was seeing a therapist. She got me to do a diary of mm. when in the day I was happiest. Um, that basically the best time of the day for me was when I was running, which I think, I think it's partly because of the running. It's partly because I listen to music when I'm running, and also mm-hmm. sort of within five minutes of running, I can be out in the countryside. That said, you know, I am I I am really happy when doing philosophy, for the most part. You know, when I'm learning about something and and then figuring out what I think about it and want to say and writing. You know, I do. I mean, they do give me a great deal of happiness. But I suppose that's more the happiness in doing philosophy rather than how philosophy might help you to to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one. But one thing I think is that for me, it's been important that I do try to write on things that are making me happy. Because uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues the other night, and he had begun a project looking at kind of international food systems and you know mm. multinational corporations with food and he oh. just came to find it so depressing <laughs> oh see oh no yeah. why <laughs> uh i think because he felt that in many ways these corporations are, are kind of giving us bad food and yet mm-hmm. there isn't really anything that anyone mm-hmm. can do about it because they're mm-hmm. so powerful. And mm-hmm. he started to feel so miserable that he mm-hmm. he decided to, to write on something else. And I would say uh, that I'm kind of similar, except in, in the sense that um, more on the, the positive side of it, that I do kind of try to write about things that are making me happy. And if, mm-hmm. I, if I even think that there's a topic that might make me miserable, I, I, I'll just stay uh-huh. away from it. <laughs> That's a good suggestion. No? <laughs> I wonder if the themes I pick up, they are always uh, quite depressing. And well, uh, yeah, right. I wonder, maybe I should change at some point, but I never right. did. Maybe I, I should start following the advice here. I mean, I don't know if either of these are at all philosophically informed, but in a way also, I do very much 
I just, I kind of go by what I seem to be feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so if I just find that I seem to be spontaneously being drawn to think about a certain thing or be reading about it, I tend to just just kind of follow it. And if mm -hmm. there's something that I'd set out to work on and I'm not feeling it, I just... <laughs> Make complete sense. For me, now that we are talking, I think a philosophy became a kind of a sword to fight injustice. That's why the themes I pick up, they are always a little bit uh, bringing me down. So right. bioethics, I remember we had a beautiful conversation a while ago on miscarriages and how doctors were uh, treating it, you know, like a flu. I remember we were... Uh, talking about that and then I started writing about it because oh my god it can't be that in the 20th century we are uh, still treating 21st actually uh, treating uh, miscarriages in that way and the health of women in uh, that way or uh, environment Absolutely. yeah yep. well I, I've because I've had I've had two miscarriages and uh, I'm, I'm sorry yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, one of the doctors, he wasn't willing to give me any time off work. Um, he said, well, you need maybe three days to get over it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, fair enough. Because, of course, you know, if you want to fight injustices, you have to talk about the injustices and think about them. So... Mm -mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I see that. I mean, but I it can't be always that. Otherwise, yeah. it starts being tiring and takes uh, something away from you. So, an approach of checking what makes you feel good might be healthier, actually. But yeah, I suppose you don't want to end up, you know, um, kind of ignoring injustices and not no, not doing not anything about them and not. And then they won't get changed. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that is the case for why it's it's also good to not just focus on the happy things. I mean, one of the other things I think that I've gradually learned, although I wouldn't say really I've learned it from philosophy, but people would often advise me to try things like yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. I always used to come out come out of it feeling more frustrated than I'd gone in and um, <laughs> I think at a certain point I realized the thing is I have to be active I'm just mm. kind of, right I have to be doing stuff all the time so I think you know for me running um, mm -hmm. kind of is my my meditation yeah if with when it's like kind of sitting you know if it's sitting type meditation i'll just be kind of like, like that. <laughs> I want to be doing something i want to be doing something i completely understand and you know aristotle told us that psyche is movement so we want to keep our soul happy uh, by yeah give the soul a space to move and uh uh, remind ourselves that we are alive. I mean, uh, yeah, mm. uh, sit on our chair. Uh, yeah. I completely understand uh, <laughs> the need to move. Yeah, I mean, I guess that 
it's funny because I was saying how I, you know, that first when I was a student, you know, first reading ancient philosophy, where at least, I mean, there is a lot more of an idea of philosophy as, you know, uh, a kind of, as helping you to be happy in some mm -hmm. sense in some sense of happiness. Um, and then it does seem to me that for a lot of the 20th century, there was quite a lot of philosophy. Maybe it was particularly so in Britain, where I don't know if you agree, but I think people would just so frown on that idea, you know, like, you know, that philosophy shouldn't say anything about actual life at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think we've got over that, though. Oh, God, yeah, me too. I, I remember when I was younger, I was very much attracted toward that kind of philosophy. And now I'm uh, allergic. I mean, so much so that I'm creating this podcast in which life and philosophy mm -hmm. come together. I I think that, uh, yeah, philosophy, for me at least, philosophy is a reflection on life. And when I read about philosophy, I need to be able to relate it to something at least human, not necessarily my life, but human in general. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree, I agree. But I remember one of my tutors, a man, you know, nonetheless, who I, I very much admire, who I think is a terrific philosopher, but him sort of saying someone had asked him about the meaning of life and he was like philosophy it, it can't deal with those sorts of things at all that's completely <laughs> not, oh, what, wow. not what good philosophy does oh god well and speaking of meaning of life that's generally uh the last question i asked to my guests i mean if uh you have um, to say what the meaning of life is, uh, if there is any meaning for you. What would that be? What do you think is uh, the meaning of life or your life? Hmm. What do I think is is the meaning is the meaning of life? Um, I suppose there's a philosopher at the moment, one of these nineteenth century. Mm -hmm. Women philosophers. This is a slightly indirect answer, but one of these yeah, one. three women philosophers who I've become really um, taken by, Frances Power Cobb. And mm. one of her, her sort of principles is that she thinks it's, she thinks this is it, that it's self evident that we ought to try to increase the happiness of all kind of sentient beings and reduce their suffering. It sounds mm -hmm. a bit like utilitarianism, but she mm -hmm. thought it, was, it wasn't because she thought it was more just kind of intuitive that, you know, um, she thought, how could you really argue? Mm -hmm. How could you argue against this? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously... In practice, it becomes really difficult because you can't just be, you know, bestowing good things on all and sundry. You know, it's not practically possible and mm -hmm. you know, it's always all that nice and so on. But mm -hmm. I think kind of just some sort of idea like that, to me, mm -hmm. is not, that's not too bad as an attempt at, at a meaning of life. What that's do you 
Yeah, I think that the philosophy can, at least me, can help me to find the meaning of life uh, in the sense that it's not something constructed, it's not a package that is uh, out there, but it's um, an endeavor that is uh, up to us. And we have, as another guest of mine said uh, a few weeks ago, we have uh, a limited amount of time to, to cope with it, to, to, to find this meaning. And at each time it changes. Uh, and uh, it's as if it also calls us to be found. And so personally, I experience it as this ongoing chase. And when you finally grab it, ah, the world uh, is at peace. Uh, you you feel uh, in harmony with everything and so on. And then, you know, something new happens to your life. Um, some experience uh, catches your attention uh, and uh, and you have to grab again, uh, to find again uh, this meaning. And so far for me, philosophy, meaning. The ability to reflect on my own experience has been a way to to find meaning, helped me tremendously with making sense of things. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So I suppose your view, in a way, it kind of starts off quite existentialist, but I suppose yeah. the differences, like to relate it back as well to someone like Camus, he would say that we search and search for this meaning and it's not there, you know, that, yeah. whereas I guess you think, you know, we can reach it, even though then things change and we'll have to kind of, you know, start start piecing things together in, in a new way. Yeah, I give the phenomenological twist, of course, to Camus, because, uh, uh of course, Camus starts from an existentialist uh, point of view. So we are here, our life is finite. For me, there's always the Husserlian um, point of view for which, uh, you know, if you reflect on your lived experience, uh, you can, you are the main author to make sense of uh, this lived experience. And there's this ongoing case, uh, I would say. I don't know. I I would disagree with your uh, professor saying that philosophy cannot uh, work on uh, meaning, uh, shouldn't care about meaning. I mean, I understand it because it's also a theoretical discipline and it can bring uh, uh, important benefit to different sciences and uh, the advancement of knowledge. So, But that is uh, one of the many branches of philosophy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose another thing I think about the meaning of life is that people have so often related it to, to death. And you, exactly. you're one of your conversation partners mm -hmm. who talked about finitude, and it's so much been the finitude of death. Mm -hmm. And I do very much think that we're all so born and, you know, that there hasn't been nearly as much philosophical reflection on mm -hmm. that. That's true. Yeah, that we're finite in that way too. And that was so, one topic of your studying on being born. Mm, you worked on that, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's ways that it seems to me that our finitude kind of becomes a bit different sort of once we 
we think about birth and death. Um, but I mean, the funny thing is that when I'd written about being born, um, it was sort of no sooner had this book come out than we had the pandemic. Uh-huh. And, you know, death. It was like, you know, death was suddenly, you know, at the forefront of everybody's minds. Mm-hmm. And that did make me think, well, okay, you know, so there's been a lot more attention to death than birth, you know, and I wanted to kind of bend the stick back the other way. But I mean, death is important too. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a mystery in uh, becoming to life, and uh, it's an interesting mystery also to observe. Uh, phenomenologically speaking, I mean, to see how these, uh, our new soul starts uh, forming. Who knows if they need meaning, actually, speaking of which, because um, it's an ongoing exploration, it's an ongoing learning process. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the Taumadzein of Plato, you know, being uh, amazed. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is. Absolutely remarkable when a new person, if person is the right word, you know, but a new being, a new individual that they've come into the world. And I think that was some of what I just found so terrifying when my daughter was born, just the kind of magnitude of, of this event, you know, and it seems so radical in relation to you know, the things that you've you've done kind of leading up to it and sort of knowing that the result would be that this new being will enter the world. And yet there still seems a way that all of those those preconditions they they just seem to sort of fall short of this, yeah. this kind of absolute arrival of of yeah. someone new. It, it, it's another universe all of a sudden. Mm, mm, mm. Well, thank you, Alison. It was time flew by and uh, it was uh, a wonderful pleasure to have you here and to discuss, uh, to have this stroll uh, into ideas and uh, uh, life, into this uh, connection of life and ideas. It was really, really a great pleasure for me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've I've enjoyed it too. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure philosophy can be helpful to us, you know, in finding happiness. It probably has for me in ways that I'm just, I'm, I'm not necessarily even aware of. Who knows? Yeah, I, don't, I think it's not something uh, permanent. Uh, I mean, it might help uh, in a moment and then it might drag you down mm-hmm. <laughs> in the next moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, there was uh, an Italian writer, uh, Pirandello, who compared philosophy to a kind of um, a, a lamp, a little lamp that you have in front of you that illuminates uh, the path that you are taking in the darkness. You know, just uh, the mm-hmm. tiny bit you have uh, to move uh, five feet forward, uh, and then it's dark again, and another five yeah. feet. I don't know. I I like that comparison. It uh, I I found it fit for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's a nice image. Yeah. Mm-mm.
Uh, well, anyway, I, yeah, thank you. Thank you for thank inviting you me to so much for, uh, for this wonderful conversation. And it was a great pleasure, pleasure to see you and to chat again. You too. You too. Have a good time. evening. Bye. Bye.